Welcome to the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast, where legends share legendary stories. Presented by Template Suites, Waco Northeast. This is episode six of our Nine for Title IX series, featuring Texas Sports Hall of Fame inductee, Francie LaRue Smith. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast, presented by Tampa Suites, Waco Northeast. This is episode number six in our Nine for Title IX series to celebrate 50 years of Title IX, which was signed into law on June 23rd, 1972. I am author and oral historian Jackson Michael. On the podcast today is Francie LaRue Smith, one of the few Americans in history to make five Olympic teams. She later spent two decades as the head track and field coach at Southwestern University in Georgetown, Texas. She is one of the premier long-distance runners in American history, and her career extends back to before Title IX was passed. Coach LaRue Smith will give us a glimpse of what women's athletics were before Title IX. She will also tell us about her remarkable Olympic career, which started with the 1972 Olympics in Munich and concluded with her being selected as the United States flag bearer in the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona. She set many world records during her track career, including a sensational stretch in which she set the mile record four times in two years. The number of national titles that Francie LaRue Smith has won are far too numerous to list. She has been a national champion over a dozen times. She was inducted into the Texas Sports Hall of Fame as part of the 2020 class. And you can hear highlights from her induction in episode 27 of the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast. Thanks so much for being with us, Coach LaRue Smith. You grew up in Northern California, and you ran your first meet when you were 13. What do you remember about that first meet, and how did you get started in running? Long story short, um, Title Line happened in 1972, my athletic career started when I was 13, so it was when I was in junior high school, eighth grade, when I started running. And there were no programs in the schools for girls, at least in the Bay Area, there were no programs. <laughs> the only opportunity that girls had to compete, say, for example, in my high school, was girls' sports class. And I think they did compete sometimes against other schools, but in order to be in that class, you had to do all the sports that they offered, and none of them were my sport. So, long story short, my oldest brother was an Olympian in 1964. I was exposed to the Olympics as a result of his participation in the Olympic Games. Parallel to that, whenever we had to run around the field in school, 
uh, for the physical fitness test or whatever, I was always one of the best runners, including the boys. It was just something that, as a kid, I grew up playing. Uh, when we were living in Palo Alto, we had a, lived on a cul-de-sac, and as kids, we just roamed. We played street games with our neighbors and, and all of that. So I have a background then became introduced to the fact that girls ran, and that happened when my parents took us to watch my brother run, and I saw girls competing on the track, and I said, oh, I can do this. And from then on, between my parents and my brothers, they found a girls track team for me to join. The first track me, my first race was a 200, and I missed the race because I didn't know what I was doing. And then, and then and then I ran a 600, and I think they had sections, and I was in the slow heat because nobody knew who I was. I mean, I was a nobody, and I placed third overall of all the people in both sections, um, not even having run against the first two finishers came out of the first section, and I won the second section. So I started winning from the get-go. And when you say you started winning from the get-go, you really started winning. It wasn't long before you were winning at a national level in a big way. My first two years at nationals, I won the 800 and set national records in the 1417 division. And then in the 1500, I made my first ever team at my first ever national championship. So I was 16 years old then, and I made my first national team. In that meet, I placed second in the 1500. Wow, that's while you're still in high school. Yes. There was no programs in school. I was competing on a girls team. We had no programs in school. So it was just several girls teams in the San Francisco Bay Area and beyond. There Sacramento had a team. San Jose Cinder Gals, that's what I was. There were probably 10 teams. It was either you were in swimming. Santa Clara Swim Club back then was one of the top in the nation, had the best swimmers in the nation. So if you were a good swimmer and you were on that team, you were probably going to the Olympics. You might go into tennis if you had parents who could get you to the country clubs and to the best events, and you could play golf. There was no soccer. There was no volleyball. Wow, I mean, it's just, it was it was a different it's world. It's hard for somebody your age to comprehend. Yeah. <laughs> I stopped talking about that a long, long time ago because I coached for 20 years. Most kids just absolutely cannot relate to that, and and understandably so. So I, And I'm not one to look back. I'm always one to look forward. But there were no college scholarships uh, for girls. Like, when I graduated from high school, and this was in the the late sixties, probably when you graduated that was, high school. I graduated nineteen seventy. Nineteen seventy. Okay. Title nine happened in seventy two. So you were not offered a scholarship then at no. all. I was an American record holder. I actually I lived at home and went to uh, graduate from junior college, and then I transferred. I ended up at UCLA and. I was paying my own way to go to school there. I was training with the boys' team. And I think it's important to stress that there were male runners on scholarship. 
And although you were a national record holder, you were indeed paying your own way through school. I was only there for a year. But, you know, here's the interesting thing about that. I didn't train with the women's team. I trained with the men's team. I didn't think boo-hoo about it. I just said, okay, I'll do that. So I trained with the boys at UCLA, the men's team at UCLA, that one year that I was there. Your career trajectory is amazing. You, you make your first Olympic team in 1972. Right, right, yes. And that was my first attempt to make the Olympic team. I won the trials that year. Back then, the national championships for men, even through... 1976 was the very first time we had combined championships. I mean, even the what now is USA Track and Field, it was called something else back then. Even then, they separated us out. And so our Olympic trials were held in College Park, Maryland. They were on a high school track, and they didn't have a curb. And if you know anything about records and breaking records, if a track doesn't have a curb, the record doesn't count. And that had happened to me before, and I was pissed off because I arrived there at the Olympic trials. I thought, you know, we're here, we're in good shape. If I break a record, it's not going to count. And they put a curb on the track and said, you better run fast because we put this curb here for you. I'm like, that's at the Olympic trials. (laughs) That is unbelievable. Because you would, oh my gosh. Yeah, you would think so. Yes, you would think so. But it was different. You know, we were in transition. That was summer of 72. I don't know the date when Title IX was passed, but. It was in June. Mm -hmm. June. So these had been planned long before that. (laughs) <laughs> and our trials were probably late June, early July. What do you remember about the opening ceremonies of your very first Olympics in 1972? Opening ceremonies was amazing. Back then, we had to stand out there for four hours in our uniforms before we paraded in, but it was so festive, and, you know, I was so naive, the young person, and, and I'm sure many of us were that way that were first-timers. But the thing is, is the opening ceremonies in the summer games are on the track, on the venue in which we compete. And so even though I had been on the track to do a workout prior to that, when we were parading in in opening ceremonies, it's a very emotional experience because it was all those years I dreamed of going to the Olympics. When you parade out with the entire U.S. team behind the U.S. flag, it's just an emotional experience. Wow, here I am. I made it. And so that was amazing. And the unfortunate thing is what happened at the Olympic Games that changed things. You're speaking about the horrific tragedy of the Israeli athletes being taken hostage and later killed. It changed the atmosphere in the village. It it just changed things. The Olympics went on, and they should have, but it was uh, just a scary experience. It was a rude awakening as a first-time Olympian, and you have this 
ideal in your head about what the Olympics are, and then you get there, and this happens, and it just kind of bursts that bubble. And you realize that it really is a political event. And if you look at previous Olympiads and post-72, it's been political. I mean, even the U.S. boycotted in 1980. So politics play a role in the Olympics, like it or not. Was it different in, in Montreal? Did, had they had they taken different precautions? Oh, they... yes, yes, yes. All of a sudden, and this was going on around the world because around that time was when hijackings of planes started happening and things like that. And you started having to walk through a metal detector to get onto a plane. In Montreal, we had to go through a metal detector and have our bags checked to get into the village and that type of thing. So um, it did change things around the world in general. Not just what happened in the Olympics, but what was happening globally. When we return, we'll hear Francie LaRue Smith share what it was like to be a flag bearer for the United States at the Olympics and more about her incredible running career and coaching career on our Nine for Title IX series on the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast. Presented by Townplace Suites, Waco Northeast. Hi, this is Hall of Famer Nancy Lieberman, and I listen to the Texas Hall of Fame podcast. And if you're not listening to it, you're missing out. When you come to Waco, be sure to stay at the Place Suites Waco Northeast, located just a short distance from the Texas Sports Hall of Fame. You'll start your day off with a delicious complimentary breakfast, and you'll also enjoy the Place Suites free Wi-Fi, fitness center, and pool. Next time you come to Waco, Make the Town Place Suites Waco Northeast your home base on the road. Welcome back to our Nine for Title IX series with Francie LaRue Smith on the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast presented by Town Place Suites Waco Northeast. Don't forget to follow the Texas Sports Hall of Fame on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. I wanted to ask you about your career between the 72 Olympics and the 76 Olympics, because Uh I noticed that between February of 1973 and March of 1975, you set the world indoor mile record four times. Yeah. And you were the first woman to run in the world under four and a half minutes. Right. Can you, can you talk about your quest to, to do that? And, um, uh, that's, I, I won't, I won't say that it was a quest. It was that I loved running indoors and indoors was a great preparation for outdoors. I was competing for the Pacific Coast Club then And, I mean, I was flying by the seat of my pants. You know, he would set up meets, and I would go run. (laughs) And there were a couple of venues that were better for me in terms of performance than others. Indoors was so awesome because it's not like the indoors they run today. 
a lot of times it's an oversized 200-meter track. Some of them are still a smaller track, but say, for example, in coaching, we had a championship at the University of Nebraska, and in the, the corners, you can make them higher or lower. But we ran on a 160 oval, 160-yard oval, <laughs> indoors, bank track, and the crowd was just right there. Madison Square Garden, you could reach out and touch them with your hand, and it's, there's basically four lanes on the track. And it was so much fun. The environment was so amazing, and I, I did well under those circumstances most of the time. I mean, I did have competition, but most of the time I did very well. And certain venues were just better tracks than others, I think. What's really impressive was you were setting these records at a pace that nobody had ran before, and you were just kind of having fun. It was not uh, something you were setting out to do necessarily break the record. You set so many records. Were those things that just kind of happened? No, I, I, I mean, my goal was always the Olympics and the national championships and Olympics. So that was always what my goal was, and these other things are getting ready for that. After college was over and my cinder gal days were over, there was no way for me to compete in cross-country meets leading up to a national championship. So that turned into a training period for me, and I stopped performing in cross-country. I would just get ready for the indoor season and then springboard into outdoor season from there on. And it was all about that. And then I would travel around Europe like a gypsy with the Pacific Coast Club, and we would just go from meet to meet to meet to meet to meet <laughs> and, and run. And sometimes you had good days and sometimes you had bad days. And I think the first year or two that I went over there, I probably stayed too long just because you can only hold a peak cycle so long. And, you know, I think I overstayed my peak cycle on a couple of occasions. <laughs> so I ended up realizing, okay, I can't stay over here for two months. I need to go home after six weeks. It's usually only about four weeks you can hold a peak cycle. I was running two to three races a week. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow, that is a, that is a heavy schedule. Yeah, yeah. It was a different time. We moved around because our expenses were taken care of when we went to a different meet, so we just went from meet to meet to have our expenses taken care of. You know, we would have smaller meets and bigger meets that we'd go to, and that would take care of all of our expenses. We didn't have to come up with any money while I was over there. Very shortly after me, shoe companies came in and started sponsoring people, and they could focus more on one event, one big meet, Wow, that's it's so it, it was so different. Yeah, um. <laughs> yeah, it was. As I was saying, so I'm kind of like a little pre-title line, but as a coach from the other end of the spectrum, like I say, I've seen over the years what's changed drastically is the opportunity for women in intercollegiate athletics. As I mentioned earlier, I stopped even mentioning it. Some of the kids that I coached, their parents might have known who I was, but they didn't, and <laughs> that was just amusing. But um, 
I coach at Division Three school, no athletic scholarships, just great kids, really smart kids at a small Division Three school. And it was such a joy to work with them. But, you know, they grew up with athletics as part of their lives in the schools. It's part of the extracurricular within the school. Whereas I either waited for my mom to pick me up from school and take me to practice, or finally when I was able to drive and they let me use the family car to do that, then I would go drive to practice. But in the beginning, my mom used to drive me to practice and sit and wait for me because it was too far for her to drive home and drive back. Kids today, it's just, you know, they stay at school and they have their athletic team experience or whatever it is they do, extracurricular band or whatever else, they, they do it at school and then they go home, you know, in their little neighborhood and they move on to regional championships and state championships and national championships if they have a team that's that good. But that's not how it worked in my era. There is another important aspect of Title IX that I'd like to discuss with you. I saw one of your interviews with Southwestern University, and you pointed out that the career choices that women had before Title IX were quite limited. So Title IX opened up opportunities in both athletics and career choices. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I just always assumed I'd be a teacher. It's just what I always thought I would do. And I mean, my mom worked. My mom went to work. And so I'm from a working family. But choices for, you know, say, for example, the whole volleyball soccer thing there there wasn't that back then I mean those are huge sports for women athletes in this day and age basketball basketball was big in Iowa but not so much everywhere else and it was you know half court where they passed the ball back and forth across the line they couldn't cross the line no softball softball I mean that's that wasn't even heard of back then for women Yes, softball has exploded in popularity since Title IX. Although we will hear a bit about softball before Title IX from Donna Lopiano, the legendary women's athletic director at the University of Texas, in Episode 9 of our Nine for Title IX series. Another thing that's changed a lot since you started running and this has nothing to do with Title IX, but I'd like to hear your take on this. Shoe technology has grown by leaps and bounds since you first started. I mean, oh my goodness. Technology has totally changed with the shoes and the surfaces that we're running on. It's just the actual times that they're running. I was like, I want those shoes. I want <laughs> I want those shoes when I was in my prime. <laughs> the shoes, the very first running shoes, say, for example, that Frank Shorter wore to win the marathon in 72, the support, <laughs> what support? No support. <laughs> Just a pair of rubber soles, <laughs> you know, very lightweight. Nylon top on the shoes, yeah. How did, how did you find out you were going to be the flag bearer in 1992? I did not travel with the team over there because I was a marathoner, and the team went to Europe and had a, 
option for people to compete and whatnot. So the marathoners didn't travel with them, and we stayed home and went at a later date. So when I arrived in the village, there's a drop-dead day that the team has to be in the village. So it was like a few days before that, and there had been a team meeting before I arrived there, and they had voted, and when I arrived, the team manager came up to me and said, by the way, you're our flag bearer, and I'm like, what? <laughs> I was very, very surprised, and my now ex-husband actually, I wasn't going to bring my parade clothes with me. I've never been a team captain, you know, the thought of me being chosen to be a flag bearer was just, it just was beyond my comprehension, but he said, you know, you've been on this many teams and you've done this and you represent, you know, the change in the sport for women over the course of time because you ran the first 1500 in the Olympics, you ran the first 10K in the Olympics, and now you're running the marathon. And so I thought, okay, I'll bring my uniform just in case. And I even went to the extent of knowing the shoes they give us to wear are usually not very comfortable of purchasing a pair of comfortable shoes that make them look like the parade shoes. <laughs> and, yeah, so I actually did that, and I was surprised, but thankful I was prepared. Yeah, wow, and what, what an experience that must have been. Yeah, it was, it, I mean, I'm sitting here, and I have a little kind of woman cave, I guess you'd say. <laughs> <laughs> and and I'm working on the wall, and I, I I have a picture of that Olympiad that has me running the marathon uh, in the same frame with me carrying the flag. And, yeah, I'm sitting here looking at that. And uh, so, yeah, it was, it was truly a great honor. And uh, one of the, again, extremely emotional experiences that I've had in the Olympic Games for me, it was all about being perfect as the appendage to the American flag, to the symbol of the American people as I was parading down that first hundred meters of the home straight and by the stands where the king and everybody, all the politicians and everybody were sitting. And then I looked around the first curve as you come down to the start-finish line and then you kind of curve around. And I looked up in the stands so for the really just my first moment to be able to kind of, okay, take a deep breath and look up and see. And I saw, I get teary-eyed when I talk about this, but I saw all the American flags waving down back at me. And it was just such an emotional experience that I, I get very emotional when I talk about it. It's a, it's emotional to, to hear it, you know, like, yeah. like, you know, I, I can imagine, because I, I know the feeling, you know, as a, a spectator watching the games on yeah. television and just the amount of pride that you have. Uh, on, on, a, on kind of a fun note, um, in the past, most of the time, it's been a, a big guy. In, in my experience, it's been a big guy. Although, I will say this, I wasn't the first woman to carry the flag. In 72, it was Olga Conley, and then in 88, it was Evelyn Ashford. But we always think of the person, all the teams that I've been on, it's got to be a big, strong guy to carry the flag. <laughs> you know? But 
the truth of the matter is, I, I don't know what they were like back then, but I know that in this particular circumstance, it was not at all heavy. But I had this fear that what if the wind blew and knocked it over? <laughs> what if this? All I could think of was I have to be perfect. Well, you did a tremendous job doing it, representing the country so well for so long. What's amazing is, you, you know, you won the cross-country in the 1500 in 1972-73, and, uh-huh. and then you were the U.S. 10,000-meter champion. Oh, two miles back then. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was middle distance back then, <laughs> which is what I did, so... But what's amazing is is that you, you won a championship 12, 13 years after you had won other championships. That's that's a, was was there a secret to um, staying at that level for so long, or was it just uh, natural? Or it, uh, it, a little bit of stubbornness, not having achieved my goal to win an Olympic medal. A little bit of that, and probably a lot about the changes in the sport that allowed us to be able to earn a little bit of money. It wasn't what they're making today, but it was enough to pay the bills. And so I was able to stay in longer. So it was a little bit of both. I had the New Balance Athletic Company supporting me through, you know, really from the early 1980s until even beyond my career for a while. I was on the early end of that where we were able to make prize money from road races and things like that. And that's part of the reason I started running road races, that I switched from the track to the roads, went with longer distances. To like the 10K and things like that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I always knew I would run a marathon. It just never, I never thought it was going to be in the Olympics, but they added longer races and it made sense for me to move up. Although my knees wish I hadn't moved up. (laughs) (laughs) Today, my knees don't like to run anymore. (laughs) Francie, we we ask everybody uh, the same question and I'd like to ask you now just to fill in the blank, please. If not for Title IX, and then fill in the blank after that. If not for Title IX, interesting question to ask me and all people. If not for Title IX, it's highly unlikely I would have been able to become a college coach of women's and men's athletics. Especially being a men's coach. I mean, but if you think back to when you were a kid, and, um, you know, kind of a, a, a woman coaching a men's team just wouldn't have seemed possible, I wouldn't think. Right. Like I say, I was a step prior to Title IX, not a step ahead, but a step behind <laughs> or whatever. And I see the changes and the evolution that took place over the course of my career. And I think that was partly due to Title IX. I probably wouldn't have carried the flag in the Olympics. That's another thing. Although Olga did before, but it's just the changes in the sport, and I probably wouldn't have had that event that kept me in the sport so long. Thank you for listening to this episode of our Nine for Title IX series on the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast, presented by Tamplay Suites, 
Waco Northeast. We invite you to visit the Texas Sports Hall of Fame in Waco. And when you come, book your stay at the Tampley Suites, Waco Northeast.